In the wake of the Supreme Court's decision to effectively strike down affirmative action this summer, Harvard has made a series of changes to its application process this school year. The latest is a series of changes to the guidelines sent to alumni interviewers interacting face-to-face -face with Harvard College applicants. This week on News Talk, what the guideline changes mean for interviewers and what they may mean for interviewees. From Plimpton Street, this is News Talk. I'm Frank Joe. My name is Michelle Amponsa, and I cover admissions and financial aid for The Crimson. My name is Emma Heider, and I'm also an admissions and financial aid reporter for The Crimson. Thank you so much, Emma and Michelle, for joining us. So first, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how these guidelines changed from last year to this year. What are interviewers supposed to think about and do differently this year? So every year, Harvard releases a guidebook for alumni interviewers. Sometimes it could be their first time interviewing, and they need to know what to expect, what kind of questions to ask, how they should approach even setting up the interview, what kind of language they should use. And so every year, you'll see like a list of do's and do nots, like interview your interviewee in a public place and not at your home, ask this kind of question, don't ask about their test scores, but you can ask about their grades, all that kind of thing. So obviously with the Supreme Court case, the landscape of admissions has changed and it's become a little bit uncertain. So obviously Harvard needs to instruct alumni interviewers as well about how they should approach this new landscape for admissions. Mm -hmm. So this year they've added to the do not column, do not inquire about race, ethnicity, anything like that, and also do not take it into account in the evaluations. I think what's interesting, in the article we included an example that they had in these updated guidelines of a student very involved in their Black Students Union and organizing that's related to their race. So I think what's interesting is that the interviewee can still talk about the way their identity shapes their extracurricular pursuits and their academic pursuits, but interviewers cannot explicitly ask for that information and then include that directly into their evaluation and ratings of that interviewee. So all of this is coming in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision to effectively end affirmative action, when over the summer it declared that Harvard's admissions policies, which had considered race at the final stage of an applicant's evaluation process, had violated the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So I'm curious then how the Supreme Court ruling plays into all of this and whether or not it shaped these changes to the interviewer guidelines. I think a lot of people had questions. Obviously, in his opinion, Chief Justice Roberts said that Harvard could still take into account how race or any kind of experience has impacted an individual applicant's life experience. That I think it raises a lot of questions for interviewers as well about how they should approach it and that they included examples of how to talk about how race intertwines with extracurriculars or their life experience. I think the Supreme Court's little exception in the majority opinion raised a lot of questions for people for how practically are we going to do this, right? You're interviewing somebody face-to-face -face or over Zoom. How do you not take race into account? But I think what Harvard is trying to do with these updated guidelines is really make that clear for alumni interviewers on how that can be done. This comes on the heels then of a series of edits, revisions, changes that Harvard has made to its application process this fall. I'm curious if you could talk us through some of those changes and where this change fits in relation to them. I think Harvard hasn't really been super transparent about the ways in which they're concretely changing um, their admissions process, the way they're changing how they look at applicants or potentially how they score applicants, but they have released certain changes to the admissions process. I think it's fair to say they overhauled the Harvard 
common application. So they replaced the long-standing Harvard supplemental essay with five short answer questions that each have a 200-word limit and are all required. I think that does cause some anxiety or questions for students with these pretty significant changes to Harvard's application and interviewees. I think it's important for them to know that these changes are occurring and also how they can respond to that. Yeah, to review the new required short prompts, there are five of them. The first one is, Harvard has long recognized the importance of enrolling a diverse student body. How will the life experiences that shape who you are today enable you to contribute to Harvard? The second is, briefly describe an intellectual experience that was important to you. The third talks about extracurricular activities, employment, travel, or family responsibilities. The fourth is how applicants hope to use their Harvard education. And the fifth is, definitely a little bit more out of the box, top three things your roommates might like to know about you. So it's definitely a little bit more structured and concise than the Harvard essays in the past. I remember looking at my application and seeing that kind of long answer prompt that didn't even have a word limit. Mm -hmm. And I was like, how should I approach this? And so this is definitely a lot more structured and narrows applicants into specific topics that they should hit on. Yes, exactly. I remember that Harvard supplemental essay, you could submit creative writing or talk about literally anything that has to do with who you are as a person, your identity, ethnicity, race, etc. So like Emma said, this is it's kind of boxing you in just a little bit more. So at the end of the day, then, for the interviewer who's embarking on a season of interviews and the interviewee who is thinking about interviewing with a Harvard alumni admissions interviewer, what do these changes really mean and how much should they be thinking about them? I think interviewees shouldn't change their approach to the interview. I think if they had an idea of how they wanted the conversation to go, it should still go that way. They shouldn't feel like they should mask anything or like bite their tongue about anything. I think they should share their full self because really this places the onus on the interviewer, right? They're saying do not ask about an applicant's race. That is all. They're, they're saying no more, no less. It's more instruction directly to the alumni interviewers on how they should conduct the interview. And I think it that said, it's still helpful for any kind of interviewees or applicants mm-hmm. going in, knowing what to expect and what they're going to be asked versus what they can bring to the conversation. Thank you so much, Emma and Michelle, for joining us to talk through updates to admissions interviewers' guidelines for the school year. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Frank. At Harvard and around the nation, humanities are on the decline. Less students are enrolling year over year, and Harvard's Arts and Humanities Division has taken notice. Last spring, it circulated a series of internal proposals to try to make some changes, but not everybody was happy about it. This week on News Talk, what's next for the humanities at Harvard? I'm Rahim D. Hamid. I'm one of the FAS Admin reporters for The Crimson. I'm Elias J. Shiskel. I'm the other FAS Admin reporter for The Crimson. Thank you so much, Elias and Rahim, for joining us. So I'm curious, then, if you could start by giving us the lay of the land. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess for some context, this is all happening amid a three-year strategic planning process that is happening across the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and not just strictly limited to the humanities. But the Arts and Humanities Division is conducting its own internal review as part of this process to basically determine how best they feel like they can serve both faculty research and faculty scholarship and the students, both graduate and undergraduate, who want to be in the humanities. And there was a document that was produced last spring and late April and circulated among faculty in the division, 
which outlined both the problem as the members of this internal committee see it and an array of changes to the concentrations and secondary fields offered in the humanities, some of which may still be on the table and at least one of which is no longer on the table as a result of some negative faculty feedback as far as we know. Of course, thank you so much. So I wonder then, when we talk about the challenges that the Division of Arts and Humanities is thinking about tackling, what do we mean? Essentially, arts and humanities are facing decline in concentrators in certain departments. Certain departments are still doing pretty well, certain departments aren't. And I think there's just generally a sense that they want to give students the kind of courses they're interested in taking and also give faculty the ability to do research and teach in the subjects they're interested in teaching. And they're trying to see if the current systems that they have set up, the current institutions that they have set up, are the best ways of doing so. So the strategic planning process, according to the way administrators would describe it, is basically a way to determine if the division is working essentially for students and faculty. There's a drive to create new curricular offerings in things like the integrated humanities that would include things like the medical humanities. So for example, this document that was circulated in the spring had a proposal that would have expanded the ethnicity and migration rights secondary into a concentration called ethnicity, indigeneity, migration. Things like that are generally along the lines of what they're thinking. Just to follow up on that, we had a conversation with Robin E. Kelsey, who is the dean of the arts and humanities at Harvard. One of the things that um, Dean Kelsey told us was that the departmental structure within the Arts and Humanities Division has gone largely unchanged since about the mid-20th century, while overall scholarship in the field and in the many fields that comprise the humanities has evolved dramatically, and especially a move towards interdisciplinary research, drawing from a range of fields and a range of disciplines. And I think in our conversation with him, it feels like that in particular is at the drive of a lot of what the Strategic Planning Committee is trying to do based on this document, they've come to the recognition that, no, the current departmental organization within the division is not equipped to facilitate the sort of research that um, students and faculty are looking for at the moment. Mm. For sure. And you mentioned, too, that some faculty weren't happy with some of the proposals that are circulated in this internal document. You mentioned one of them, for example, that's no longer on the table. I'm curious if you could let us know what that is and why it's no longer a consideration. Absolutely. So it's really one proposal in particular that has become very contentious. That is a proposal to consolidate some of the concentrations in one secondary field in small languages and specifically small European languages into one broader concentration. So currently there are concentrations offered in Slavic languages and literatures, Germanic languages and literatures, and Romance languages and literatures, and a secondary field, which is Harvard's equivalent of a minor, offered in Celtic languages and literatures. And what this document proposed, and again it was circulated in the spring, it proposed the creation of a concentration called Languages, Literatures, and Cultures, which would basically encompass all four of those programs. So instead of being individual concentrations, they would all be um, individual tracks within this umbrella. And this did not go over well with faculty from these four departments who raised a lot of objections both to the process of the strategic planning project and I think to the substance of the proposal itself, which they said did not have an intellectual justification behind it. They told us that rather than this being a sort of good faith effort to expand the possibility of interdisciplinary academics and and inquiry, they felt as though their programs were being targeted because of their low concentration numbers. For sure. I'm curious where the proposal to consolidate some of the smaller language programs sits now. What we've heard is that they're looking at alternatives now based on the feedback that they've received from faculty. A member of the Strategic Planning Committee 
told me that they are unlikely to move forward with this proposal, given the feedback that they've received from the faculty. So it seems as if this proposal is not something that they're seriously considering anymore. The backdrop to all of this is that the humanities broadly are facing a series of challenges and that attempts at proposals to change some of the internal concentration-related structures are an attempt to respond to that. I'm curious in your conversations with Dean Kelsey how he reflected on the challenges that humanities is facing now and how these proposals sit in relation to that. Like you've said, there's a sort of what you might consider a crisis narrative in a lot of the discussion about this based on a perception of declining interest and the fact of declining enrollment. One of the things that um, Dean Kelsey told us was that his sense is that the current departmental structure is not equipped to deal with the sorts of academic inquiry that he's looking to facilitate within the division. And I think something that's important to remember about this proposal that was circulated in the spring is that it's highly provisional. The conversations in the committee are still ongoing. As Rahim said, it's our understanding that this particular language consolidation idea is probably unlikely to be adopted. And one of the things that Dean Kelsey told us is that at some point, if the Arts and Humanities Division is going to keep up with the demands of humanities research in the 21st century, that there's going to need to be some serious institutional change to accompany that. Thank you so much, Raham and Elias, for joining us to talk through the Arts and Humanities Division and proposals for changes that may happen. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us on, Frank. News Talk is hosted by Frank S. Joe. Producers of this episode are Yael S. Goldstein, Frank S. Joe, and Gina H. Cho. Our multimedia chairs are Joey Huang and Julian J. Giordano. Our managing editor is Brandon L. Kingdollar. Our president is Kara J. Chang. From 14 Plimpton Street, this is News Talk. Thank <laughs> you.